and welcome to the Media Law Podcast. Colette and Paul here today, and we're joined by Dr. Judith Townend, a senior lecturer in media and information law at the University of Sussex, to speak about open justice, court reporting, and transparency during the pandemic. Judith is also a core member of the Transparency Project, a charity that works towards improving accessibility in the family courts of England and Wales. So we'll be discussing Sir Andrew McFarlane's, president of the family courts, recently published Transparency Review. Judith, thank you for joining us. Um, Perhaps a good place to start is on your work with open justice and, and transparency, and maybe just begin by giving listeners a brief description of what open justice is and why it's so important. Oh, thank you very much for having me on, on the podcast. I'm really happy to be here and to be discussing these topics with you. Um, so big question, what is open justice? Um, I think there's probably a, a certain amount of familiarity with it, not just people that work in media law, but the general public. You know, open justice hopefully does mean something. Um, the principle of having public access to courts and to the justice system, the idea that justice has to be seen to be done, to be able to observe the system, to check that it's functioning properly. Um, and I initially got interested in this because I worked in journalism so I had this sort of journalistic interest in accessing courts and courts information and some realized that there were quite a number of obstacles and difficulties with accessing certain aspects of the court and justice system so that was sort of my context for it but then as I got further into legal research and realised that there were also problems on that side in terms of researchers accessing information about courts and and the justice system. Um, And it's just sort of been a continued interest for me on quite a practical level as well as the theoretical one. Um, But to answer this this question about what is open justice, I think, you know, the reason I gave that background is to say that you've got lots of different perspectives in terms of what people want from the open justice principle. So I could sit here and rehearse the case law on it as to you know what judges have said about why we need this principle of, of, of open justice. You know, it's a fundamental principle of the common law. But when you start looking into why different sorts of court users would want it, you realise there's quite a lot of differences in, in, that, in those perspectives. So a journalist is obviously driven... Um, by primarily by sort of wanting to find material that's newsworthy and of news interest so from their perspective you want things like real names you want quite a lot of personal data from the court system in order to be able to tell these stories um, and to create news uh, copy or uh, news content Um, if you're uh, a practitioner you might not actually be that concerned about sort of certain open justice points you mean you accept it as as an important part of the societal function of the courts, but maybe it's actually just an incidental part of what you're you're doing. Um, and then judges have made very different pronounce, you know, different varying different pronouncements on, on why we need open justice. Some talk about deterrence, so you know, putting public in, information to the public domain that might deter future offenders or even deter the offender that they're that's being prosecuted at the time. Um, or you know, they talk about broader accountability of justice. Um, and there's, you know, and there's some sort of theoretical expo- exploration here. Paul has certainly done some of this in his work, looking at those different functions of open justice. And I think I, you know, I, I feel most comfortable rooting my arguments for open justice in the in the justice system accountability space. So we're saying, you know, that, that this is a really important public function. And in the interest of democracy, the interest of justice, we need to have scrutiny of how it's functioning. Um, but that might be a slightly different perspective, as I said, from other people in the system, like the, the news journalists, for example. Yeah. And of course, this is uh, an issue that 
uh, courts continue to have to grapple with, um, particularly in the uh, family uh, court uh, division, um, but also but also in the media and communications uh, division as well. And of course, uh, a case like ZXC and Bloomberg is due to be heard in the Supreme Court soon. Uh, regular listeners to the podcast will know that Tom and I have very different views on Richard. Uh, I think it's a bad decision uh, and Tom is wrong. But um, uh, <laughs> Judith, you've been uh, um, involved uh, in, and very interested in uh, the work of the Judicial uh, Select Committee on um, Open Justice uh, for the benefit of our listeners, what, uh, what's that committee doing? Well, this is the, I think, the, the, the Justice Select Committee in, in Parliament has opened a short inquiry on open justice. And I think, from what I understand, that's been prompted by their previous inquiries on elements of the court system, looking at how the justice system was functioning in the pandemic. And it was drawn to their attention that there have been some issues with around open justice and publicity and transparency of the courts. So they've taken this opportunity just to have a short inquiry. I don't know how extensive it's going to be with the oral evidence, but they've taken written evidence. And I've been in touch with quite a number of people who have put in rev- written evidence to the committee. So it's a chance really to get this sort of parliamentary scrutiny, which is a, a committee of MPs from different parties, um, to look at, at these questions. And, and hopefully they'll continue... Um, to make some useful points as they have done in the past that will get the attention of the Ministry of Justice and the court service and relevant government ministers so that we can and and the judiciary to an extent to, to, to get some improvement on the way that open ju- justice sort of functions in practice yeah. um, so that the stage it's got to now is that their call for written evidence has closed and then we're waiting to have some oral evidence um, hearing so I think I mean anyone that's interested in this topic it will be worth you know looking out for the report when it eventually yeah. comes and um with, with something like open justice of course the the arguments tend to be incredibly finely balanced uh, between the need for for example confidentiality and privacy uh, and the need for uh, reporters to be able to report what's happening so that amongst other things we as citizens can uh, moderate our lives so as to live within the within the law um, now, there are different issues that arise in different courts, but what are some of the issues that have arisen here in the context of, say, the family court? Because this seems to be, and the court of protection in particular, this seems to be something that crops up all the time in the popular news world. Yeah, well, the fam- the family courts is a sort of a bit of a special case, really, um, because there's always been restrictions on who can access it. So predominantly, mm. these hearings are being heard in private um at the earlier stages and changes the the initial reforms that were made allowed accredited journalists access to the family court um but until recently no other members of the public had a a default right of access recently they trialed allowing a broader category of observers to attend and these have been called legal bloggers but they have to be it's quite strict conditions still they have to be qualified lawyers operating in a particular you know working for a charity or um, or uh, or an educational establishment in order to get access to the family courts, and then they've had that the, the equivalent access to a member of the it's a, a card carrying member of the media. So the, the, they've got a press card. I mean, it might not be 
needed to show that necessarily, but that's sort of the way in which the accreditation has worked. Um, but there's been this feeling that the transparency initiative needs to go further that there needs to be not only those rights of access but actually make it easier to report because even though they had access they still were needing to get case by case permission to report on cases um so that they've just undergone now this big transparency review in the family um division and published a report suggesting some reforms um for how that might be handled in future and then to link it to your point about the court of protection they they in that report they do mention the court of protection as a sort of not quite equivalent but a similar scenario and to look what's happened there and the setup there has been slightly different not so many hearings are in private and they it's um, still very much subject to reporting restrictions but there's been a little bit more flexibility in observers reporting and they mention a court of protection project that's been going on the last year or, so, or I think it started during the pandemic actually led by Celia Kitzinger And she's got a group of individuals who are all observing cases and then reporting them online. I mean, like I say, subject to reporting restrictions. So nearly always these would be anonymous reports. Um, But that's actually praised in this report as being a a really positive initiative. Could you perhaps provide a little bit of background as to why this report was needed in the first place? What are the issues that are unique to the family court when it comes to transparency? Well, I think it's 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 just been <laughs> bubbling under the surface is probably to, to downplay the issues. You know, it's just it's been a real tension and there are people with very different views about how much publicity of proceedings there should be. But then I think probably general consensus on that it wasn't working very well. Um, and the, in the in this report, Sir Andrew McFarlane, the president of the family division, makes reference to the fact that, you know, it's really important in terms of public confidence in the law and the justice system to have access to information about what's going on. And he talks about the different interests in achieving that. And what I thought was really interesting in that report was that it doesn't play off privacy and transparency against each other. And this is a view that Lucy Reed, who chairs the Transparency Project, which is an independent charity, she quite often writes this, you know, that these two things don't have to be mutually exclusive. We're not always looking at one or the other. We're looking at how they kind of... In- in, that we achieve this sort of interplay between them um so I did just pull out something he said in that report which I thought was really helpful and sort of and not just relevant to the open justice actually I was thinking about you know all of the work that Paul's done on privacy and and, and media you know media coverage and thinking about how you achieve that that balance between free speech and privacy and I thought this comment was quite helpful Okay, so Sir Andrew McFarlane says that openness and confidentiality are not irreconcilable and each is achievable. The aim is to enhance public confidence significantly whilst at the same time firmly protecting continued confidentiality. So it's then finding mechanisms to achieve those two things, if that makes sense. Um, And I think often those practical mechanisms are just really overlooked. So to come back to your question, which was about the difficulties in this area and why the review was needed, it's about what do those mechanisms look like? And one of the challenges is obviously that, the you know, it's not the judge's role to, to draft the legislation, a role to draft the legislation, you know, that's for the politicians and for the lawmakers to do. Um, so, but the judges are the ones that are obviously going to see these practical issues arising. So I think what we've got with this report is the judges sort of commenting on some of the practical issues, making some suggestions that can be done within the parameters of the existing law, but then saying, you know, this is for parliament to, give attention to if you know and and political attention to if need be. I want to ask you a little bit more about that last point actually 
Um, Section 12 of the Administration of Justice Act 1960 is the law that makes it contempt of court for public information relating to family proceedings to be published without the permission of the court. How effective will this review be and the proposals suggested while Section 12 is still good law? Yeah, well, there's, there, there are people that think that Section 12 need to be, you know, needs to be reformed or repealed, um, but that obviously is a matter for Parliament, so well outside the remit of the transparency review that was undertaken by the Family Division. Um, and it just it, it, it alludes to that and you know, flags that as, an, as a matter for Parliament. Um, but what they've designed in these mechanisms is a, is a kind of workaround, say, like within, uh, within Section 12, there's flexibility for the court to, to allow the discretion for reporting of cases. So if they have a sort of default rule that can be devised, which allows journalists, qualified legal bloggers to report as well as observe um, without seeking special permission every time. But that doesn't do away. The court could still impose particular restrictions in a particular case. Um, so they've still got that ability to do that. It's just that the yeah the 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 the, the expectation of reporting goes the other way. It now means that it's easier to report rather than not yeah not to report. So in the longer term, it might be that Section Twelve does need to be repealed or reformed. Um, but in the in the interim, they found a, a sort of me, means to to circumvent it. Now, just on this point about the sort of qualified journalist, uh, as it were, and the the need to demonstrate. Um, uh, an expertise. Um, what's your understanding of the rationale behind this? Is it uh, that if you are uh, an expert journalist, you're more likely to attract a wider audience and therefore it's about maximising coverage? Or is this something to do with responsibility or a sense of responsibility that established journalists are more likely to write in a responsible way? Very good question. And I think, um, you know, this speaks to an issue that's cropped up in other areas of media regulation, this idea of what is an accredited or yeah. type of journalist or, you know, who is a news publisher, all of these questions that are relevant to the idea, of, you know, any kind of statutory involvement in media regulation, for example, um, which I'm sure you've discussed on the podcast in, in the past. Um, and no one's really you know, nailed that or sorted it out, really, um, because we want these special privileges for journalists. But, you know, journalist isn't it's not a similar profession you know, in the legal profession. You can say, well, there are certain criteria that you can define a qualified lawyer. Um, and yeah, and and it's a regulated profession. Um, but, you know, we don't have a, a system of full statutory regulation of, of journalism in this country so there is no way of saying you know, this, these people are qualified journalists or these people are you know um sort of recognized by the state as being qualified journalists and i think it would be quite problematic to do so so we run into these issues where where there are practical circumstances where you need to say or, or people want to say there are certain types of journalists that get these special privileges, but then it's sort of a bit of a, a murky area to try and say who they are. So in, in the court, in the open justice context, what you tend to get is this word accredited journalists. And what that means is, as I mentioned earlier, they hold a press card, but there's not really a very rigorous system around how you get a press card. It would be quite, you know, you have to be a member of a body that's able to issue them. Um, so that could be, for example, the National Union of Journalists. Um, and then you, you hold that card and then it should give you certain access to do things. Um, and that's how it's worked in the in the family courts context, I think. Um, and then 
then there was a sort of a nervousness around the push to allow other people access and they'd done it with journalists and you and actually I don't think it you know it hasn't caused huge problems that was that was running okay um but maybe because of this caution there was you couldn't just open it to everyone so then this this yeah these quite strict criteria got devised and drafted through the procedural rule committee um for these these legal bloggers that fulfilled certain criteria um, but I think, I mean, in my mind, this isn't really a perfect solution. We probably need to, there needs to be some more policy work around this. Um, and it doesn't, I know it doesn't sit comfor- comfortably with some people because there might be other types of observers that want access to the family courts. For example, if you were an academic working in the media field or an academic working on social, on, in social work, why shouldn't you have access to the, to the court? Why, you know, even if you don't, you're not an accredited journalist or you're not a qualified legal blogger. Yeah. I mean, I, from from my perspective, I'm more comfortable with the sort of simplified utilitarian argument that speaks to reach. Uh, the idea that uh, those that are allowed in are those that uh, have the greater potential reach um, in terms of getting the message to the audience. I tend to think that the strongest argument for allowing the reporter into the courtroom is as a substitute for the general public um, to to be the sort of eyes and ears for them. I think mm. the difficulty is that when, although we might be tempted to try and speak the language of responsibility, we just don't have any structures in place to uh, underpin that. And there is a fiction that is repeated often in the context of press regulation that IPSO is uh, an accredited regulator that has the power to uphold that sense of responsibility to ensure that journalists maintain certain standards but it is a fiction because one when one looks at the contracts that sit behind ipso and and how it regulates its members it doesn't have any of these powers it can't uphold that sense of responsibility it doesn't even try to What's also interesting, I think, in the context of citizen journalism is that judges don't seem to have a clear idea themselves in their own mind of what to do with citizen journalists. So, for example, there was a a very recent decision in uh, the um, High Court. Uh, It's a case called uh, McNally and Saunders, uh, in which uh, it's a harassment case. Uh, that was struck out, it's a strikeout application, um, uh, essentially to do with an individual who purported to be, uh, claims to be a citizen journalist uh, who was accused of harassing uh, a member of uh, the council, the local council. Uh, the claim was struck out, it was struck out on the basis essentially of press freedom, that the court, although the court didn't think much of the journalism, it was prepared to recognise the individual as a journalist and to give them the protections that journalists have from prosecution under the Protection from Harassment Act. Yeah, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, like like I said, this sits in the in the broader context, doesn't it, around how we define journalists and journalism. And I think generally we can look at case law, and there's been a a wide latitude given for the types of people that do journalism, and for protections to be to recognise like that, so you don't have to be in a very n- narrow category of, 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 of a news publisher, that, that it could be individual bloggers or other people are protected as journalists as well. 
Um, so, I mean, that's a book to be written, isn't it, on definitions of journalism and journalists? Um, not I've one heard, that I'm going I've to heard, write. <laughs> I've already written it. It's, it's, it's there in, in all good, book. Bu- good uh, book publishers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So no one, no one has to write it. I've done it. <laughs> How common is it for there to be contempt of court issues with either card-carrying journalists or citizen journalists? Is this something we talk about being a problem in theory, but isn't actually translating into a real issue? Or do we have any stats on this? I would love some stats. This is always, I feel like it's so boring because I'm always going on about lack of data and you know, more research needed. But you know, so much you know, of, our, of commentary in this field is just sort of based on, on, on anecdotes. We don't have reliable records of who's attending court, for example. And it might be problematic to collect that data, but we can't really say much about it. I mean, the Court of Protection, when they first opened it more widely, they were asking people to sort of register to, to visit. Um, I don't know if that's still happening now, but in other courts that wouldn't be the case. And I think people might complain, actually, if they were asked to sort of register their details on on attending. Um, But, you know, it would be useful to have at least some kind of surveying so we've got a feel of who's attending court. Um, Just I'll come back to the citizen journalism point, but just to first of all say that there was a study that was done in Bristol um, by some academics and they basically hired their journalism students um, to attend court for a week. And they, they managed to, you know, observe nearly, I think, every courtroom in the course of the week um, to, to look at what kind of cases were p- passing through. And what they observed, you know, the jour- journalists weren't there in court. Um, so so the, the point of the, and the article that they've published subsequently sort of comments on this sort of the, you know, the, the weakening of open justice in that sense, because the, the local media weren't attending court, at least in the week that they were observing. Um, and then they 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 look at they, they they met one journalist there I think in that week and then there were a couple of reports published, but largely the, all the activity within that magistrate's court in that week was was going unreported whether or not it fulfilled newsworthy criteria or not. Um, going back to your point about whether there are actually issues about people getting access and citizen journalists, it does arise, um, and this is what really concerned me during the pandemic period was how did public observers get access to remote proceedings that were being used for the first time in some courts? And so just to give my very own example, um, with a colleague, um, a, a criminal solicitor by background, we'd set up a, uh, Lucy Welsh, um, I'd, we'd set up a pilot project with her um, criminal law clinic students where we were, we were basically quite inspired by that Bristol project and we wanted to go to Brighton Magistrates Court and do something similar. Um, and so we just got underway with it, done a couple of observations, sort of, you know, talked to the court's administration to explain that we would be in court and this is what we were doing. Um, and the students were, you know, quite excited and interested to be doing it, I think. And then pandemic hit um, and there were various reasons we could no longer attend court. You know, initially, obviously, everything just shut down um, as, as as everyone figured out what would happen. Um, and then we, we as university employees we couldn't really carry on with field work and it wasn't responsible for us to keep encouraging students to go to the courtroom in that if you remember that kind of very intense period in the first lockdown but court proceedings were continuing but we had no way of accessing any information about them because magistrates lists aren't published online the lists are supplied to accredited journalists but I and I think in some other courts they might supply those to people that aren't accredited journalists potentially but I was told that I wasn't allowed to access them. And we tried to appeal. And actually, we had a um, 
journalist on our research team who who has a press card but even on that basis they said well this was for research rather than for journalism so we couldn't have access to the court list so there I just had my own example of where not being an accredited journalist doing journalism was a boundary to accessing information and we other than going down to the court and we weren't quite sure whether that put us in breach of the you know the, the covid restrictions at the time um there was no way of finding out like how cases were proceeding or what cases were proceeding and to me that was really quite worrying particularly as our whole project was inspired by justice accountability justice system accountability knowing what's happening in the justice system and monitoring it so as a result of that I was sort of collecting examples of things other people were reporting and there were a number of people who aren't accredited journalists as such but are public observers of the court so they work for justice charities or in or their academics and so with them we wrote an open letter just sort of uh, raising it att- or trying to draw attention to the fact that people were were having issues with accessing courts and courts information during the pandemic period and because I was watching in the justice select committee people were giving evidence saying that open justice was continuing but I think overlooking some of these practical issues. To what extent do you see these uh, issues being a legacy of the pandemic that continues now that the courts are adopting this hybrid approach of some remote hearings and some in-person hearings? Do you think that we've got into bad habits in any way? It's difficult to say, again, an absence of, of data because there hasn't been, as far as I know, like reliable monitoring of all of these issues. So some of the research has picked it up. So the Legal Education Foundation has been involved in doing a review in the civil context and there's been some work on tribunals so we've got a little bit of information there but I'm not aware of I mean I may be wrong and someone's done one and I I just don't know about it but in the criminal context there has been a concern that there hasn't been sort of systematic reviewing of of the impact and implementation of remote courts and public access in in that context so to an extent I'm just speaking off anecdote in terms of what I've seen people tweeting about or what I've been told Um, when we Paul McGrath and I um, published a um, an article looking at remote justice and uh, yeah, and sort of the pandemic effect on access to court proceedings. Um, and when we published that, a couple of people did sort of say things had slightly changed since that initial early pandemic period. So, for example, at that quarter protection project, they were now finding it easier to access proceedings remotely than they had done previously you know as the system sort of bedded in and people got more used to it the uh, procedure around it was standardized um so that that had actually improved since the, the some of the original criticisms or observations that were made when we um when we talk about open justice uh, of course and, what, and jude when you talked about it uh, to begin with um of course, a classic, the classic statement of open justice is to be found in the decision of Scott and Scott, which is now over 100 years old. Um, now, one of the things that always strikes me, in fact, I'll move on to my bugbear, if I may, which is um, the difference in length of judgments from the days of Scott and Scott as compared to the today it's not just the length of the judgments but you know it's thinking just about in the in the mac um the length of judgments these days even on a simple dispute such as richard and bbc is incredible is that not something we should take into account 
when we think about open justice. Courts seem to tell us everything from, you know, who turned up, what was said, what was available for lunch that day. Everything seems to go into the judgment. Not only that, judges can now, or the judiciary can now reach more people through its own interface with the internet. Are the arguments for public participation in the judicial process diminishing, or are they in fact increasing? Is this something we need to be aware of? I, th- I think you've hit on a, a really important point there. I mean, that this might be out of the select committee's interest, I guess, but um, in terms of accessibility of judgments, because it's, it's all very well saying, oh, let's put more judgments into the public domain, but are they actually usable? And if you as a, a, a media law professor, Paul, are complaining about the length of judgments, you know, imagine for an ordinary person trying to, you know, without specialist knowledge or special interest, like trying to make sense of law in this area, it's impossible. And thinking about public legal education and public accessibility of the law, to me, that's a part of open justice. And ideally, you'd see law being communicated more clearly and made, and made accessible to people. And we have seen some initiatives. Um, so in the family court, there are some judges that have written versions of their judgment specifically aimed at the children that, that the case involves. So written in very lame and friendly terms um, and, and, you know, and to, to make it as clear as possible to even to a young reader. And, and whenever that happens, you know, you sort of Twitter goes alive with sort of praising that and thinking it's a brilliant thing. But it does, you know, obviously it requires the, the judge putting that extra effort in to do it. And certainly, I, you know, it's not a part of standard practice at the moment. Um, but but why we, you know, we, we should have accessible, um, usable judgments, I think. But I think it's probably another project and too much of an ask at the moment. Um, I think, you know, it is a resource thing judges in terms of the function that they're providing with their written judgment um another issue that came up in the transparency review in the family division was the issue of anonymization so it's actually a piece of work to anonymize a judgment to make it um able to go into the public domain with appropriate details removed um the the uh, sir andrew mcfarlane was of the view that we should be removing detailed um information on on abuse for example and all of that editing work of a judgment to create a version that's suitable for the public domain is is an extra thing that a judge has to do and if there's a you know high judicial workload not enough administrative support then yeah that, that that's a, that's a question that needs to be addressed i, I suppose it's also in in, in terms of uh, that thinking through the the sort of procedures and the policies the, there is the chilling effect uh, to bear in mind as well and the chilling effects uh, of uh, restrictions and non-restrictions work both ways. Um, if uh, court reporting is too restrictive, then of course that chills the ability of newspapers to communicate in a way that they feel their readers will best understand. But of course, if you have a sort of maximal transparent process, it can also have a chilling effect on uh, complaints themselves, on claimants wanting to bring claims, um, not necessarily in the civil uh, side of things, although of course Scott and Scott was motivated by uh, an, an embarrassment on the part of one of the parties. Uh, but of course, I'm also thinking here, possibly thinking specifically here about criminal proceedings. Uh, there are circumstances in which we do insist on an anonymity because we believe that to remove that anonymity is to chill the incentive to complain. I'm thinking specifically about rape cases. Um, but also cases involving children. 
Now, this is an incredibly difficult uh, balance, I'm sure, and I wouldn't want to simplify it. Um, but how would you tackle that that problem? Well, I'm, I'm hugely interested in that question. I just feel it's been massively overlooked in the literature, really. I mean, there's the book by um, Giaconelli, which looks at open justice and different perspectives there, and it's touched upon in various texts, but, you know, it's sort of this from an academic perspective, it sort of feels like more work could be done in that area, thinking about the impacts on different people, going back to an earlier point I made, like the court users in the system. Um, so, yeah, in, in criminal justice, particularly important if you're thinking about offenders who it may be quite a minor offense uh, it may have even been an acquittal actually for an individual but then you've got that record that then exists online in the interest of open justice but then stays attached to that person every time someone looks them up you know that's the information they find so issues there in terms of rehabilitation and privacy rights um and yeah and then all sorts of yeah other impacts as well in the family context you know they're concerned about that you know how the children involved in cases feel about their personal information being retrievable online so I certainly don't have the answers but I just so I feel like I mean this I doubt this select committee is really going to have um sort of the yeah the scope to look in detail at this but I do think you know there needs to be a piece of work on privacy interests within the justice the justice system and making sense of that and we as you mentioned there are cases that that touch on it that are looking at personal information in, in and then and looking at that and, and generally the courts have come on the side of the open open justice in terms of saying you know well hard luck you know your feet you're, you happen to have got caught up in this particular case and therefore you know it's a part of open justice that personal information is included and publicized i just want to pick you up on one of the things you said there i, I know you've done some work on spent convictions and the digital footprint that uh, court data can leave um could you tell us a little bit about the work you've done with unlock the charity that specializes in working with uh people with spent convictions yeah so this was a, re- a really a very preliminary piece of work and it was just a pilot focus group sort of trying to st- to look a bit more into that question that we were just discussing. Um, so I knew that Unlock had already started a campaign on trying to advocate for privacy rights for people with spent convictions um, to, to, to enhance their rehabilitation. Um, and so not without necessarily signing up to the campaign as such, I thought it would make sense to talk to them and it provided a sort of a, a route to connect with offenders. So I, I um, set up a focus group where I invited people um, who had um, who had uh, criminal convictions to talk about the impact of publicity of court cases and media coverage on them. And it, was, it felt like, I mean, it was such a valuable exercise and it was really, really useful, but it was certainly the, the stepping stone to doing something more. And I don't feel like the, 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 the data I gathered on that, as I say, was preliminary and hopefully will feed into something bigger. So if there are any potential funders listening to this, then it would be you know great to get a, a sort of more robust and bigger research project off the ground um, to actually establish that work and to look at different types of court users as well. Um, but just to offer you a few insights into that, I think the people... It, it, it clearly and the reason and I got a new, I got very quick sign up to this workshop it was clearly something that is really worrying upsetting um very anxious thing for for, for people um in terms of sort of how it affects their ongoing life and continued employment um and some of in the end it strayed more away from the court's data aspects than I was expecting and a lot was focused on the way the media had represented their cases and that takes us into slightly different territory because that's 
probably thinking about regulation of the media. So if they if there was an inaccuracy in the way a case was reporting, sort of making regulation more robust, perhaps in order to give better redress. Um, so I felt yeah, it's quite difficult to detach those issues because you put a group of people into a room, give them some prompts, and then the conversation can take different directions, really. But yeah, certainly some definitely more work to be done there, whether with Unlock or with um, other sort of actors in the criminal justice sector. I just have one final question before we finish today, and that's to get your thoughts on the Lamy review and the suggestions made in that report to seal certain convictions or report more sentencing remarks. How do you think these two recommendations would affect transparency and spent convictions based on the discussion you've we've just been having? Well, the, the Lamy review is such a important um, report, really. And I think, you know, those recommendations need returning to in terms of making the justice system fairer um, for people from B, um, BAME backgrounds. Um, and one of the aspects of that report that really interested me, and I haven't really seen it discussed in detail anywhere, was that on the one hand, the report recommends that we should, should seal more criminal records to, to try and improve chances of rehabilitation um which seems really interesting and I don't I don't know how much depth it goes into is not and it's not the sort of something that I have specialist knowledge of but you know obviously that, that that was something that was seen as important to making the justice system fairer for individuals but on the other hand the report was also recommending publishing sentencing remarks more readily to make those accessible which is can be really important for defendants in terms of understanding their case or for bringing an appeal and it's quite shocking that we have really difficult dif- oh, there are so many difficulties with accessing sentencing remarks from criminal court, court proceedings and um, that they're only published quite randomly really um, it's not done systematically and it just struck me and I haven't really seen anyone else make this point but that there's a tension there between if you start putting sentencing remarks online they then become sort of googleable um that in contrast to this recommendation to seal more records um, and to make them more difficult to retrieve. Uh, I just wondered how we resolve that friction or that tension, but it really comes back to the point we were discussing earlier about, you know, balancing transparency and privacy, not seeing one as a trade, you know, not seeing it as always, it has to be a trade off, but figuring out what a system looks like that respects, you know, those, those competing rights. Well, it's interesting as well, that uh, the, you know, if you, if you look at decisions, uh, that judges have made uh, about media reporting of crime, for example. Um, there's there's lots of decisions in which judges adopt a fairly robust, perhaps even unsympathetic position for those uh, who have committed crime, but even those who are related to people who've committed crime. And they've tended to say, well, it's not for the law to stop the reporting uh, of uh, criminal activity uh, it will be embarrassing and shameful and everything else but you know that that's just tough but of course all all those decisions are from a pre-social media time um, they are from a time before information was so readily available I wonder if it's time for the judges to update their position on that or whether it's not worth updating yeah I mean I guess in terms of yeah, that it might that might really be a political and a parliamentary one. I really doubt that there's appetite for that right now, just to speak quite mm. pragmatically. Um, but yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I think that is all we've got time for today. Thank you so much for joining us, Judith. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. And Paul, pleasure to talk to you as always. Thanks, Colette. 
And do follow us on social media at Media Law Podcast, and we will be back with more newscasts in the weeks to come. Thanks very much. Bye.